Continuing our study in Exodus. Uh, if you weren't here last week, that's okay. I'm going to review uh, commitment number one. And we're slowing down our pace. We've been covering basically a chapter at a time. And we're going to be hanging out in chapter 20, looking at the Ten Commandments, taking them one at a time. So this week is commandment number two. Uh, so Exodus 24 to 6. Um, Idolatry Part 2 is the title of my sermon. The big idea, and, and I think we get this here, I, I believe that, that the word, referring to the Bible, the Bible, the word must inform our worship. Amen? It, it provides the, the boundaries and the, the safeties and the confines for worshiping God. If our worship is not informed by Scripture, then we're on a dangerous trajectory. It's true. So again, our worship of the one true God revealed in Scripture must be informed by Scripture. But I hope that makes sense. My boys, Clarky and Luke, they have become wonderful artists. They love to draw. Um, both of them, their artwork decorates my office. If you've ever been in there, you walk into the left, I have just their pictures hanging up, and I love hanging up their artwork. But when they were really young, um, <laughs> I'll be careful, you know... They would try to capture maybe, you know, mommy's essence, Haley's essence, or my essence. And I'd be like, buddy, what, what is that? Well, that's you, daddy. Oh, okay, yeah, there it is. I see it now, right? <clears throat> Didn't really understand what they were trying to do. Um, and the reason I share that, and now, oh, guys, Clarky, now, listen, wonderful artist. This is when you were like one month old, man. It was like, you know, Picasso. Uh, but now it's more of a Rembrandt. And so, but again, <clears throat> here's the point. Here's why I share that story. Not to embarrass my boys. Um, have you ever come across this in a church? Uh, the pastor's preaching or, or maybe the people are talking in the church and you find yourself asking, who are they talking about? Who are they talking about? This is not the God of the Bible. The reason this is the case in so many churches today is because the Bible's absent. The Bible's absent. And what we're going to see today is that there is no true <clears throat> God-honoring, Christ-exalting worship without, without the Bible, without God's Word. <clears throat> Give me about seven minutes, and I want to review everything we talked about last week. Actually, I'm going to do it in five. Last week, and this is really important, this is foundational. Last week we looked at a major theme in Scripture, one that occurs from Genesis to Revelation. And again, I love alliteration. Um, hopefully you know that by now, the one 4P challenge, right, the 4Ps. We're going to get this with four R's, and I'm going to add another R. Okay, so here's what we see, and this is starting back in Exodus 19. The Lord graciously rescues his people, the first R, to rescue. Okay, He rescues us to rescue. We see that. Exodus 19.6, God rescues his people, and then he calls them, he commissions them to be what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to be a light to the world, to point the world to God by their holy lives. And so that's the second R. God rescues his people to rescue, and number two, to resemble him. Okay, so God is holy, and we are rescued to be what, church? To be holy. Okay? The third thing is this, and we saw all this in Exodus 19, but we see it throughout Scripture. Not only does God rescue his people to rescue, 
Not only does God rescue his people to resemble him, but God rescues his people for a relationship. Oh! Did he have to do that? <laughs> Guys, that, that truth should humble us to the very core that the God of the universe, have you been paying attention in Exodus? The one who brings the plagues and parts the sea. That God who graciously rescues us, he rescues us to rescue, he rescues us to resemble him, and he rescues us for a relationship. And here's the fourth R. And this is what we saw last week with the Ten Commandments. God rescues his people to rule over them by his what? By his word. I'm going to say it again because I want to make sure you're trucking with me that you got it. Four R's. God rescues us to rescue, to resemble him, to be holy, for relationship, and then to rule over us by his word. And, and here's what we saw last week. God, throughout scripture, both creates and rescues a people by his word, and by that same word, he means to rule over his people. Amen? Oh, and as God's people, we graciously and thankfully and joyfully come under his word together. Next, we emphasized last week the point that what preceded the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments? Did God say, okay, listen, I'm only going to rescue you on this condition. You have to first obey my word perfectly, and then... And then I'll rescue you. No, grace comes first. The good news comes first. God graciously rescues a sinful people, and then he gives them his what? His what? His word. You guys tired today? You seem kind of dead. Wake up. <laughs> this is a great quote by Kevin DeYoung. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. In the same way, the believer in Christ is saved by grace through faith and then comes under the word and obeys the word out of gratitude for God's saving work in his or her life. Finally, last week, we looked at the first commandment, Exodus 23. You shall have what? No other gods before me. And we answered several questions last week. I don't have time to go through all these questions again, so I picked about three or four. Number one, why is this the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. It's because it is foundational for the rest. In the first commandment, what is God doing? God is establishing himself as the sole supreme. He establishes his claim over all of our lives due to the fact that he alone is God and there is no other. And the next nine must be heeded because of the first Last week, we defined idolatry. What is idolatry? I gave you a few definitions. This one by Greg Bill stood out to me. I think it's really helpful. Greg Bill writes, whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. That is idolatry. An idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. Now, what does the first commandment call for? The first commandment is a call to give one's sole allegiance to the sole sovereign, the Lord God. It is the call to look to God alone for life, satisfaction, and ultimate fulfillment. It's the call to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to seek whose glory? His glory in what? Everything. Now, how do we fight idolatry? This is a really important question. We need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves. Do you recall the 1 John 5 text? I mean, it just makes our idolatry look utterly foolish. What, what, and again, if you've ever studied 1 John, 
it may seem anticlimactic, but if you know John and you know 1 John, it really makes sense what he's saying. If you know the, the historical situation, uh, if you've read it, but listen to how he ends his letter. He says, drum roll. I'm not very good at that. Um, I sound like Chewy Chewbacca when I try to do the drum roll. <laughs> Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's how he ends his letter. But what comes before that, friends? Again, how do we fight idolatry? By preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Now, what does John say right before that? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, but then verse 20, the verse just before that, he says, He, referring to Jesus, this is the context, He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. That's the gospel. And again, John is talking about Jesus here. Jesus is God and eternal life, eternal life is found in Him alone. Okay, so... Again, this reveals the utter foolishness of idolatry. Only Jesus is God, and only Jesus can provide us with what? Salvation, eternal life. Amen? Again, idolatry is placing anything other than God on the throne of your heart. And the gospel reveals to us the truth about the true God, thus guarding our hearts against idolatry. Can anything else fulfill us? Can anything else satisfy us? Can anything else, anyone else, bring us to God? Only Christ, who is the true God, and in him is found what? Eternal life. All right, now, that was my review. Five minutes and 30 seconds. It's okay. What is the difference now between the first and second commandment? This is really important. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. That was last week. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, Paul read it for us. I'm going to read it one more time. You okay with that? Thank you. You shall not... Now listen, this is really important. I'm going to, I'm going to dissect this, okay? <clears throat> you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's pretty exhaustive. <clears throat> you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So he goes a step further. Not only should you not make them, but you should not... Bow down to them or serve them. For, here's the reason. Everybody say reason. And he gives, that was good. And he gives three. Here's the three reasons why you should not do this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting, and that's the first reason. Reason two, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And then number three, the third reason, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This was really helpful. Kevin DeYoung writes, if the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. And I think I put that in your notes. Did I? That quote good. That's a really good quote. That's not Chris Taylor. That's, that's K-Dog. What is God teaching us in the first and second commandments? This is important if you're taking notes. It matters who we worship and how we worship. And who we worship is revealed where? And how we worship is revealed where? Can we worship without the Bible? I mean, we can. But is it going to be right and God honoring Christ exalted? Say it in Spanish. No, never, never. <clears throat> the key to worshiping the right object and the key to worshiping the right way is the word of God. Because again, and I think this is in your notes as well, 
the word reveals to us the proper object of worship and the appropriate way to worship. The word shows us who to worship and how to worship. Who to worship and how to worship. Therefore, there is no true worship without the word. Anything, any attempt to worship outside of this is going to be pseudo-worship or false worship. Not God honoring true, authentic, genuine worship. It's true? We agree with that. Okay, good. Now, the reason so many churches and Christians worship wrongly is because the word is not informing and guiding them. It's not at the center of their gatherings. And that will tragically throw everything off, leading a people down a dangerous and damning path. And I said that word, but I think I said it appropriately. Because it will. It's true. Man, guys, we know this. Now, be honest, man. Maps. Maps are for the birds. I don't need a map. I am a map. My brain's a map. Come on, guys. If you start in the wrong place, you will inevitably get lost. We we understand that principle, right? I think we start here. And I remember the directions, so, but you didn't start in the right place. You started in the wrong place. And I don't care if you have the directions. If you start in the wrong place, what's going to happen every time? You're going to get lost. You're going to get lost. If we don't start here in who we worship and how we worship, we're going to be what? Lost. So with the first and second commandments, we learn that idolatry not only involves looking to someone or something instead of God for fulfillment, satisfaction, but actually trusting in these things to do what only God can do. So, listen to this. Idolatry is not only looking beyond God for spiritual fulfillment, but it's the act of imbuing spiritual efficacy to a physical object or something man-made. Now, the clearest example of this is found in Exodus, about 12 chapters later from where we are now. And it's the golden calf. Who's from the golden calf narrative? Aaron's words in Exodus 32.4 should fill God's people with righteous rage. <clears throat> this is Exodus 32.4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There are two fundamental problems with idolatry. How many? There's really two. The first, and this is so important, the first, and Paul gets this in Romans 1, the first, the first fundamental problem with idolatry is the blurring of the distinction between the creator and the creation. If you get that wrong, again, you're starting in the wrong place, right? So the first problem concerns the blurring of the distinction between the creator and the creation. Idolatry happens when God's creatures, humanity, look to creation for spiritual fulfillment and rescue rather than the creator. Again, the creation was never meant to function in this role. Creation's role has always been to bring honor and glory to the creator. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. So again, if you're taking notes, it's an easier way of saying it. Creation was never meant to receive worship, but to inspire it. Creation was never meant to receive worship, but to inspire it. 
Now, the second problem, the first problem is that blurring, right? The blurring of the creator-creation distinction. We have to get that right. We are the creation, and he is the creator, and only he is worthy of our praise, our allegiance, our worship. Amen? How dare we worship creation? And that brings us to the second problem. The second problem concerns mankind's abandonment of purpose. The tragedy of idolatry is that it serves as a rejection of God's creative intent for humanity. Adam and Eve, right, the first two humans, and all humanity were created in the image of God to reflect the creator. Mankind is God's image placed in God's space, his created world, to reflect him, not for our honor and glory, but for his honor and glory. But because of sin, because of what? Because of sin, we have turned that, which is most foundational to who and what we are, upside down. And I'm going to end with this, but Paul addresses this in Romans 1, 18 to 32. The result of sin is mankind worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And it makes sense, right? Because Adam and Eve, what was the tantalizing lie that Satan gave them? You can be like God. Oh, so we can be on par with the creator, no longer the creation. We can be receiving the worship rather than giving it. What a lie. What a foolish lie. But we believe that, don't we? Oftentimes we do. Now, what is the result of idolatry? I mean, there's a lot of things you can say here, right? But I would say the primary result of idolatry is dehumanization. Dehumanization. We become less human. We become less than what we were called to be. Jesus showed us what it means. Jesus is God, but he also showed us what it means to be truly what? Human. So the result of idolatry is dehumanization. Do you remember last week when we looked at Psalm 115? Psalm 115 encapsulates this. This is verses 5 to 7. Idols have mouths, but they do not speak. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have eyes, but they do not see. Well, that sounds odd. <laughs> but listen to verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Simply put, and this is going to be mean, but it's true. Idols are dead and dumb, and so are those who worship them. But that's the point. That's what the psalmist is saying, right? I mean, you become what you worship, and if you worship something dead and dumb, you become dead and dumb. So don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Aren't you thankful for the warnings of Scripture? Yeah, and as I spit and talk, aren't you thankful you're not sitting on these front rows? <laughs> this is really important. So this is helpful. Let's look at how the second commandment, which is pretty long, it's verses 4 to 6, how it's structured. Okay, This is really important. We have two negative commands or imperatives. And a negative command is do not. Right? When you tell your kid, do not touch that, that's a negative command. right? Don't do that. There's nothing negative about what you're saying. You're just saying do not. That's the negation. Okay? And so we have two negative commands followed by three reasons for the commands, or that's the grounds, okay? So let's start with the first command. This is so confusing, but it's the first imperative within the second commandment, okay? So the second commandment has two imperatives, two negative imperatives, two do not do this, do not do this, followed by three what? Reasons, okay? And that grounds 
the command. So, you shall not, there's the negation, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything. Now, listen to the language. That is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Very exhaustive. I mean, he's covering all the bases. Now, to fully understand the first part of the second commandment, we've got to go back to Genesis 1. Hopefully, the more you study the Bible, the more you realize how foundational Genesis is. And not just Genesis, generally, but specifically chapters 1, 2, and 3. It is foundational for all of Scripture. Because, again, what's established at the outset of God's Word is there's one God, and He's the Creator. And everything owes its allegiance to him. Amen? And then we see why we're in such a big mess is because, what, Adam and Eve? What did they do? They rejected God. And now we're in a fallen, sinful world. But there's also good news in the opening chapters, Genesis chapter 3. Getting ahead of myself. A proper reading and understanding of Genesis 1 is integral to having a good and right theology or understanding of God, namely who he is and how we are to relate to him. What do we learn in Genesis 1? He and he alone is the creator. And whatever falls within the realm of heaven, earth, or water is creaturely. It exists because of him. Therefore, the creator-creation distinction must be maintained. To get this wrong is to get everything wrong. It's true. The making of images is an attempt to manipulate God, to bring him down to us. We can't do that, can we? Can we manipulate God? Can we control God? How foolish. We cannot control God. He comes to us, amen, that's grace, and he dictates, he dictates the stipulations of our relationship, namely how we are to relate to him and worship him, and that's found where? In the word. So to make an idol is to seek to establish control. It's an attempt to rule. It's an attempt to relate to God how we want to, rather than how he wants us to. Why is this so dangerous? When we seek to relate to God outside the clear confines of Scripture, then the image of God that we end up with inevitably becomes less clear than more clear. Nothing, now get this, nothing in creation can fully embody the glory and splendor of God. They can function as pointers, yes, but not the full picture. That was the first imperative. The second imperative you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The second commandment moves from bad to worse. Making an object is one thing, but bowing down to it is another. This represents the climactic travesty of the second commandment. Why was idolatry such a temptation for Israel? Why is it such a temptation for us, do you think? Who's ever struggled with idolatry? Raise your hand. All of us. You've put things on the throne of your heart other than God. You've looked to things, relationships, people for satisfaction, fulfillment, rather than the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. All of us have struggled with that. Why? Why was it such a temptation for Israel? Why is it still such a temptation for us today? I think the best commentary on Exodus is by Doug Stewart. Really helpful, really big. 
Kevin DeYoung's book, though, what he does, there's a section in uh, Doug's comment. I'm calling him Doug. I had him as a professional, so I can call him Doug. Uh, no, I can't. Dr. Stewart, there's a section in his commentary where he lists out basically the nine reasons why Israel was so tempted by idolatry. And then Kevin DeYoung in his short book kind of elaborates on these. So I want to look at three of the reasons why idolatry was not only a temptation for Israel, but why it's still a temptation for us today. Number one, it was easy. Idolatry was easy. DeYoung writes, a good Canaanite, and who are the Canaanites? People live in Canaan? (laughs) I was looking for an easy response. Yeah. A good Canaanite didn't need an elaborate moral code or a righteous pursuit of personal holiness. He just had to show up and present a drink or a dead animal. That's what Israel fell into time and time again. It doesn't really matter what I do. I just have to show up and go through the religious rituals. How deceptive that line of thinking is. What we see in Scripture time and time again is that the Lord sees the, he sees the heart. He sees the heart. You can't fool God, can you? You can go through the motions all you want. You can fool me. You can fool Dave and Aaron, Paul. You can fool your brothers. And, but who can you not fool? Because he sees the heart. So don't give in to that temptation. Well, it's easy. Number two, it was convenient. DeYoung writes, ancient worship, this is so good, worked on a franchise model. There were many places one could go to take care of his or her religious obligations. Again, this was part of the allure of idolatry for the Israelites. Why not build a few high places? Why not make worship a little more convenient? But Yahweh has prescribed ritual worship in one place, at the tabernacle, and later in the temple. And third, it was normal. And this, I think, is the most relevant for us today. This is where I think most churches fall into the trap of idolatry. It was normal. Listen, Jung writes, everyone else, talking about the pagan peoples, right, the Canaanites, everyone else, though their gods had different names and did different things, did religion the same way. The Israelites were unique among the people of the ancient Near East. It's hard to be a religious minority. Isn't it hard? Don't we see this today? So many churches begin to mimic the culture. Why? So as not to appear strange or, my favorite phrase, on the wrong side of history. Come on. When the church you attend, I'm I'm, I'm saying this, okay, and I think all the pastors agree. When the church you attend begins to look like the culture, get out. Get out. Run away. But don't we struggle with the same temptations? And I hope, I hope this convicts many of us. Isn't it good to be convicted if it's the Spirit working through the Word, sanctifying us? I mean, praise God for that. So I want to argue that we struggle with these same temptations. We look for that which is easy, convenient, and normal. But this is not the way of Jesus. So guard your heart, my friends. I want to give us basically four examples of this. So four things. I'm not going to take too long here, but I think all of us are going to say, yeah, I've struggled with that. So equally important to who we worship is how we worship. And this is where so many people get it wrong. We seek to set the terms rather than looking to God's word. And again, when we start in the wrong place, we will inevitably get what? We'll get lost. So here's some examples. I don't need to go to church. 
right? I'm a Christian. And man, listen, I've been back just over a year now in East Texas, and I have heard this probably a dozen times just talking to people out, out and about. I, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I can worship out in the woods in my deer stand or on the lake fishing. The woods is my church. You know, I was um, watching a documentary the other day, and Ethan Hawke, he's an actor. I mean, I don't know if he's made much recently, but he's directing this documentary. And I was so sad by his story because he said, you know, growing up in Lubbock, Texas, went to church every Sunday. And then one Sunday, my mom was sick. And my dad said, hey, let's go to church. Wink, wink. And on the way, he said, hey, there's a Western showing. You want to go see it? So they skipped church, and this is what he said. He said, that day... The theater became my church. I said, dude, what does the word say? Who's ever heard this reasoning? I I don't need to go to church. I can set the terms, right? Yeah, Jesus is my king, but when it comes to worshiping him, right, I'm I'm autonomous, I'm independent, I'm going to set the terms. Forget this. And that's essentially what we're doing when we say, I don't need to gather because, talking about setting terms, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day approaches. So, what should we do, church? We should gather. We should not neglect this. Those are the terms set by God in his word. Amen? I don't need to give my money. God doesn't need my money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need to give. Yes, but he desires your heart, and the two are interconnected. Amen? What does the word say? Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's word, time and time again, calls us to give faithfully and joyfully and trustingly. Amen? But again, it's so easy. When you set the terms, no, I don't got to give. I don't got to gather. I don't need to read the Bible. I, uh, this was probably six years ago now. I remember sitting with a guy at Starbucks. He was new to our church in Washington. And I said, man, so are you a believer? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. What are you reading right now? What do you mean? Well, in the Bible, what do you? He goes, bro, I have not opened my Bible in 15 years. I punched him in the face. I didn't mean to. It was just like a reaction. Is that terrible? I'm just kidding. I would never do that. Gah! <sighs> It was more a face punch in my direction. Honestly, when I heard that, I'm like, you, you claim to be a believer, but you honestly, you've not opened God's word in 15 years? How would my relationship, I mean, I haven't been married 15 years. I've been married 12 years. Haley, I love you, but I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I don't want to hear from you. How's that relationship going to be? Non-existent. What does the word say? Psalm 19:11. I have stored up, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Is God's word important? Are we called to be in it? Yes. Here's one. Last one. I don't need to be married to enjoy the benefits of this relationship. What does the word say? Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality, immorality, sorry, but sexual immorality, porneia, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Idolatry is mutiny against the one true king. It's an outright rejection of his rule by his word. It's saying, when you commit, when we, 
myself in there. When we commit idolatry, what are we saying? My word takes precedence over your word. How so? Tim Chester writes, To reduce God to something of our own making is to make him manageable. To understand him according to our notions rather than according to his revelation and his word. Now, I, I see this all the time, and I just gave you some examples. I've heard those, by the way, since I've been back. But when I lived in Washington, I talked to people all the time who tried to justify the LGBT agenda by saying this. This was the phrase I often heard. Jesus is all loving and all accepting, and therefore, so should we be. But where are they getting the notion of Jesus is all accepting? Not the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Yes, Jesus spends time with sinners and tax collectors, but he never condones or endorses their sin. Instead, he calls them to repent and believe, to leave their sin behind and to follow after him. Recall the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10. He treasured his wealth more than God. So Jesus said, give it away, and then come and follow me and have true treasure. (laughs) What are these folks doing? They are seeking to form a version of Jesus after their own image. They are allowing their sinful heart and culture to inform their understanding of Jesus rather than the... When we don't start here, we're going to get what? We're going to get lost. When we seek to fashion Jesus according to our hearts, and that sounds so sentimental, right? We all, I just, that's the Jesus I want. Well, guess what? That Jesus is an abomination. It's not the true Jesus. God's word, his gracious word is meant to rule over us, amen? It shows us the one true God and how to relate to the one true God. And when we reject this in lieu of this, Friends, disaster. All right, let's look at the three things that ground these two imperatives. What are the two imperatives? Don't fashion and don't bow down, right? Don't fashion an image and don't bow down to it. Why? Somebody say, why? Well, the Lord tells us, number one, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So number one, this is in your notes, the first reason or grounds is the Lord's jealousy. Now, maybe you kind of reel at that. The Lord jealous? That sounds petty. Well, no, listen, there's only one person who has the right to be jealous, and who's that? That's God. This word, kana, in Hebrew, it's only used of God in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? It's only used of God. It's only applied. This, this adjective, kana, is only applied to God in the Old Testament. God's jealousy is warranted when the first and second commandment are transgressed since he alone. Everybody say he alone. He alone is worthy of our allegiance, our worship. Um, I mean, I was going to cross this out, but it's a good quote from Alan Cole. So obviously I didn't cross it out. I didn't need to include that, but I did. He writes, jealousy does not refer to an emotion so much as to an activity. In this case, an activity of violence and vehemence that springs from the rupture of a personal bond as exclusive as that of the marriage bond. No husband who truly loved his wife could endure to share her with another man. No more will God share Israel with a rival. The idea behind the Lord's jealousy is his righteous demand for exclusive service. 
He alone is worthy of our hearts and lives. Amen? Amen. To give our hearts and lives to anyone else or anything else is to rouse the righteous jealousy of God. Now, man, one of my, we, we remember, actually memorized this a few weeks back. This is one of my favorite verses in Psalm 119. We should share in this righteous indignation when Jesus is not acknowledged as the one true Lord and Savior. Amen? And we see that in Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. It should burden us and break our hearts when the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ is not honored and worshipped as king. Number two, the second reason. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, this verse is often misunderstood. Rather than a promise of retribution against successive generations for the sins of their fathers, it's to be understood as a warning. Everybody say a warning. It is a warning against the future spread of ignorance. And that's in your notes. It's a warning against the future spread of ignorance. Stuart writes, Doug Stewart, it does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of a predecessor generation, contrary to Deuteronomy 24.16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. He goes on to write, Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. So, this is a warning. If we don't treasure Christ in his word, then most likely our children will not treasure Christ in his word. There are exceptions. Amen? But, most likely... Most typically, they're not. So the question is, parents, what are your children learning from you? Our example in the home is of utmost importance. Do our children see us faithfully gathering every Lord's Day to worship the one true God or only when it's convenient? Hey, kids, it's sure a nice day. Let's go fishing. Hey, you know what? We had a late night last night. I'm tired. Who wants to sleep in? Hey, donuts. Make it donuts on the way to church and bring me some. Come on. Don't be selfish. What should motivate family discipleship in the home? Yes, a desire to see our children saved, but even more so, a desire to see God glorified and honored by our obedience. Amen? Number three. I'm moving now. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the third reason or ground for keeping the second commandment is love for God. Why do we keep his word? Because we, we love him. The text says those who love me and keep my commandments. Our obedience springs from our love, namely our love for the one who has rescued us from what? What has he rescued us from, church? Eternal separation. Hey, tonight, Lord's Supper, I'm going to be preaching on John 3.16. So come for that. Our obedience to the commandments of God spring not from an attempt to get right with God, 
but out of a deep love for God, for his rescuing grace, mercy, and love. In sum, what is to ground the second commandment is a commitment to God's service, his glory, and his fame. Next, how does the second commandment point to Jesus? And Jesus is the solution to idolatry. Jesus, as the word of God, right? He is the, he is the image of God par excellence. Jesus has fulfilled the second commandment. Let me read 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Gospel says, don't look to man-made objects for salvation, but instead look to who? Look to Christ. And those who look to Christ will become like Christ, and this for the honor and glory of God. True worship begins with faith in Jesus, because through our union with Christ by faith, we are justified and then are being conformed more and more to his image by the Spirit for the glory of God. Let me end with four practice steps. I'm going to run through these. Practice steps based on the second commandment. Number one, join with God's church to make the invisible God visible. Do you know we're called to be God's image? We're made for that reason. That image was fragmented by sin, by the fall, but restored in who? Christ. Why did Jesus come, church? John 1, 18. No one has seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him what? He's made him known. Jesus came to make God known. What's our job? 1 John four twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Our job, as people who belong to the king, is to make the invisible God visible, to make him what? To make him known. And when does that happen? And we obey him when we live as his gospel people in community together, doing the one another's, loving one another, spurring each other on towards Christ. When we do that, we, church, make the invisible God visible. So join with God's church to make the invisible God visible. Number two, look to Jesus. Oh, look to, don't, don't look to the things of this world. Look to, look to Jesus. In order to see a clear picture of God. We must never look to the world. Instead, we must look to the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, who alone can show us God and bring us back to God. Recall Jesus' words in John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the, has seen the Father. This is a great quote by DeYoung. My last DeYoung quote. He says, We don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ is the image. And that's the Greek word, icon, of the invisible God. That's Colossians 1.15. We have the icon. Who is the icon? Christ. And where do we behold Christ? 2 Corinthians. In the word. Number three, point others to Jesus. Yes, this includes doing the one another's. But with that, this refers to evangelism. God has come to us and made himself known to us in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And this good news, once believed, needs to be what? Needs to be shared, proclaimed. We have seen the beautiful Savior Jesus in the word. And now we are called to point others to Jesus. 
Mankind will never know joy until they know God. And mankind will never know God until they know the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen? What is the only remedy for idol worship? Christ. Idolatry seeks to hide the glory of God. Right? Idolatry seeks to hide the true glory of God. If you are most concerned with the glory of God, then you must evangelize the lost. What happens when rebels shaking their fists at God by God's grace, by hearing the gospel in the spirit regenerating them, now trusting in Jesus, are raising their hands to God in worship? That means more what to God? More, more glory. So what should motivate our evangelism? God's glory. God's glory. We want to see unbelievers turned from glory stealers to glory beholders in Jesus Christ. Number four, last thing, be informed by the word in your worship. Again, if you ever find yourself in a church where this is not center place, where the worship is not being informed by this, run. Run away. Run away. The word reveals God to us, amen? And the word shows us how to relate to that God. The word must inform what we say when we gather, what we sing when we gather, what we pray when we gather. If we're looking to anything other than the word to inform our worship, then we are guilty of breaking the second commandment. Is this serious? Massively so. Well, I told you I was going to conclude with Romans 1. And then we're going to pray. In Romans 1, oh, I mean, this is worth a sermon in itself, but give me one minute. In Romans 1, Paul warns us against the slippery slope of sin. Because of sin, Paul says we what? We suppress the truth. And when we suppress the truth, we fall prey to lies, namely the lie of idolatry. We look to the creation rather than the creator for fulfillment. And this leads to all kinds of evil. In fact, when we get this most foundational relationship wrong, all our other relationships will suffer. Mankind neglects God's plan in marriage. And rather than seeing others as those we're called to love and serve, we see others as those we're, we're going to exploit and do whatever we can to get ahead. When we get the vertical turned upside down, the horizontal gets turned upside down as well. And the only cure for sinful humanity, the only cure for idolatry is the gospel. Do you know it? Do you know the gospel? What is the gospel? It's good news, amen? I was so encouraged at VBS, Aaron, how well the kids knew the gospel. Praise God for that. Thank you for your ministry, brother, to our kids. Our kids know the gospel. Now we need to pray that the Spirit would apply it to their hearts, amen? And I believe he already has for many of them. But do you know the gospel? Do you know it? What is the cure for our idolatrous hearts? Jesus, fully God and fully man, left heavenly glory. Amen? He took the initiative to rescue a sinful people. And how did he do that, church? By living the life we could not live. Raise your hand if you're a lawbreaker. What's the debt we owe God? He's perfectly holy and perfectly just. We owe him a perfect life. Have any of us lived a perfect life? Are any of us capable of living a perfect life? Can we make up for our imperfect life? No. But who lived a perfect life for us? 
Jesus. So, okay, first part, Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, obeyed God's word, his law perfectly. Amen? And he did that in our place. And then, because we're lawbreakers, what do we deserve? Death. And not just... That was terrible sounding. Not, not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. That's our punishment that we justly deserve. But, oh, God in his grace sent the Son not only to live the life we couldn't live, but to suffer the punishment, to die in place of sinners, to take God's wrath for us at the cross. Amen? And you're like, does this good news get any better? It does, because three days later, the Son who died was raised, proving all his claims are true, and that a way has now been made available for sinners like us to be rescued and brought into God's family by trusting in Jesus, by turning from our sin, by acknowledging, yes, God, I'm a sinner. I can do nothing to save myself. Your son did it all through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, and I trust in him. Please forgive me. And what will he do? He'll forgive you and bring you into his family. You get the Holy Spirit. You get God through the church, and we're going to follow Christ together. Amen? If you've not done that, I would implore you, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for rescue. Only Jesus can fulfill our hearts. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, you are king. You are the perfect image of God. And we thank you that by grace we behold you in the word of God. And by grace we trust in you, Jesus. And we ask you now, give us a heart burden for the lost. I pray that we would see those in our relational worlds who don't know you through your eyes, that our hearts, our eyes would weep for them, and that we would go to them boldly, declaring to them the good news of salvation in Jesus, calling them to repent, turn from their sin, and trust in the only one who can save us and give us eternal life, and that is Jesus. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you have saved many of us from idolatry. Jesus, reign over our lives Rule over us by your word. Convict us of sin, Lord. Reveal to us our idols. Help us to smash them and to put them in their proper place and to put you on the throne of our hearts and to treasure you supremely because, Jesus, you are worthy and you alone. We love you. We thank you for your word today. Apply it to our hearts. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep short accounts with each other, to disciple each other, and to spur each other on towards glory for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said,